This is the One Soldier Podcast, Episode 13, Blood of the Donnellys. There's no justice like mob justice. No trial, no jury. It's quick, expedient, and bloody. On the night of February 3rd, 1880, in a small farming town called Lucan in southwestern Ontario, a vigilante mob of some 30, maybe 40 men arrived at the farmstead of the Donnelly family and commenced in an orgy of violence, using guns and clubs and pitchforks. When it was over, Several members of the Black Donnellys, that most infamous of all Canadian families, lay dead in pools of their own blood. On today's episode, I'm joined by Keith Leckie, who's going to talk to us about his new book called Cursed, Blood of the Donnellys. And Keith is going to get into the family curse that was brought over from Ireland to the New World. He's going to talk to us about the events of the massacre and the question of did the Black Donnellys have it coming? I caught up with Keith from his cottage in Ontario to learn more about his book and the Black Donnelly family. So you ready to talk about the Donnellys? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, well, let's do it. Keith Leckie, I just want to first of all say thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and making the time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. It is a great story. I mean, uh, above and beyond the book, it's... Um, uh, it's really a classic, iconic Canadian story that's very unique. It is. It's a story that, uh, well, first of all, the book is really well written. I really enjoyed it. And I think you're right. Like, it is an iconic story that I think a lot of Canadians have, they've heard of it and they've maybe heard of the Black Donnellys. So for me personally, I didn't know a lot about the Donnellys. Like, when I heard the name, I sort of associate it with you know, murder and violence and massacres, but I didn't know a lot of the backstory. So your book is just, it's fantastic to actually round things out. Yeah, well, I, I love history and I love Canadiana, if you will, or Canadian history. Over the years I've worked on, um, I, I wrote many years ago, the Avro Arrow story or the Halifax Explosion as a miniseries on CBC or Everest, uh, a miniseries called Everest, um, about the 1982 expedition by Canadians. Very dramatic, four people died getting to the, the summit of Everest, but um, you know, the drama there. I mean, I love Canadian stories. We did a, Where the Spirit Lives was a early film that we did about uh, First Nations residential schools and that sort of thing, that was 20 years ago. Um, so I'm, uh, although I've, I worked for a number of years in Los Angeles and uh, for NBC and CBS doing movies and so on. My my heart is really in Canada. I love telling Canadian stories. And it, it's almost like in my career, I've, I've saved the Donnellys as this plum, this, this great story. So, so many dynamics to this story. Um, I've kind of saved it, uh, you know, in my career to to tell now in a in a novel. Yeah. And one of the things that I that I really enjoy about the story of the Donnellys is that it well it, it resonates with people because it involves like all these things that can make people do you know really really horrible things and also really good things like it's a story of i'm talking about family and love and revenge and loyalty and and your place in a community so it's all these things that we can relate to 
which right. which I think is probably one of the reasons why it's endured for so long. Yes, uh, it it has been enduring. I um, I was thinking, as I say, I've known about the Donleys for all of my life. I, my my father grew up on a, a farm west of London, Ontario, and uh, we would go back to visit my cousins in the summertime when I was a kid. And there was one time in particular that my, my dad was very gregarious and into stories, and uh, he, he said, let's go see about the Donnelly. So we went to Lucan, and we went into a general store, and I had heard a little bit, there was violence, there was death. Um, went into the general store, and my father went up to the, I guess, the proprietor and said, uh, you know, we're, we're here in Lucan, and I've, can, can you tell us some things about the Donnellys? And I remember very vividly this moment where the proprietor goes, we don't talk about the Donnellys here. The Donnelly story has been told a lot of ways, and there's pro-Donnellys and, and uh, anti-Donnelly versions of the story. There's one called Vengeance that it just recently as a musical, they did it as a musical. And they, they make the Donnellys look like monsters. They're, they're actually... I mean, it's a vivacious uh, musical that, that has played in Edmonton and London, Ontario, and big audiences, and they'll probably repeat that story. But it makes um, uh, Joanna Donnelly like this crazed uh, woman uh, pushing her boys on to commit murder and mayhem. And um, so I, I wanted to get into the Donnelly story because they're, as I say, they they're, they're either portrayed as uh, innocent lambs that were slaughtered or, uh, or monsters that deserved everything they got. And I do have theories about all of that. And in the book, I think, I, I looked at the letters uh, that many of the boys would write, like Will Donnelly, he was a poet. He would write poetry and, and he had love affairs uh, with um, uh, various girls. But... Um, there was Maggie Thompson was famous in that uh, the, Maggie Thompson was totally in love with Will and they had two or three years where they would meet secretly and they had this love affair with letters going back and forth in poetry. And the Thompsons despised the Donnellys. They hated them. And so there were fights back and forth and they finally took Maggie Thompson and took her away and, and hid her in a cousin's farmhouse so that Will Donnelly would not get to her. And Will Donnelly with his three or four um, brothers went to try to find her and basically kidnap her and uh, did not find her because the Thompsons had hidden her. But the Thompsons then had this, uh, you know, a huge feud against the Donnellys and they were part of what stimulated a movement of vigilantes against the Donnellys. So I was looking for the more human aspects of the, the boys, because they were, certainly they were, um, you know, uh, roustabouts. They were, uh, uh, they, they burned barns, there's no question. They burned barns, they beat up people, they seduced women, they probably stole horses. Although I've talked to some of their descendants and they say there's no way that a Donnelly would actually kill a horse because they, they raised horses and they, you know, were into studying and they, would would never have, have killed horses, and there were certain you know uh, horses were were killed under certain circumstances, and uh, everything that happened in terms of 
at least in the last few years after 1876, leading up to the massacre in, in 18, 1876 to about eight, to 1880. You know, it, uh, the, the tensions against the Donnellys were rising and the opposition to the Donnellys were rising. Yeah, I, I like the, uh, th there's definitely like this uh, intergenerational feud going on with the Donnellys because of course, well, you mentioned Will, he wants to marry this young woman and then she's married off to the nemesis of the family, um, going, going back to Will's dad. So all, all that, you know, I do, I'll admit that I embellish certain things and I will change the, uh, some of the, facts, but I, but I really draw a line in the sand because I want to tell the truth. And I believe you can tell the truth even if you are dramatically embellishing certain things. But a lot of the things in that book are absolutely as it was. The, the fights with the, um, the Flanagans and, and with the constables and with the soldiers coming in to actually arrest the Donnellys, take them to trial. These are all in the years leading up to the, to the massacre. All of these are pretty accurate according to court records and you know, um, the, the history of the time. Yeah, it's pretty bad when you have to send the army in to, to right. get the family when the, the police can't get the job right. done. That's right, the constables. Uh, it, it's interesting because there was, there was one big Donnybrook at the, I believe, the Central Hotel in about 76 or maybe 77. And I got an email three days ago from this woman who had read the book and said, um, you mentioned a, a Constable Berryman, and uh, I think that was my great-grandfather, <laughs> great-great-grandfather. And so, so that was a real guy? A real guy, absolutely. His name was August, August uh, Berryman, and he was enormous. He was like five foot eight, and he was this big, giant guy, and he was a constable in London, Ontario. And they, they brought him in to try to quell the Donnellys, and he actually ended up after this big fight at the Central Hotel inside, there were fights outside and inside on the main street. There were fights and the Central, inside the Central. But uh, Berryman wound up unconscious on the floor, and that you know that's a fact. And uh, Jim Carroll was shot in the leg, and you know all of these are uh, details that I try I, I used in the book because they, they just give a, a ring of truth, and and they are the facts. Yeah, and what I really like, what I was gonna, where I was gonna go with this is that with this intergenerational family feud, like if you're from a small town or a small community, this this really resonates because these are places where like you know everybody and there's like history between the families. It's not like living in the suburbs where you know you don't even know your neighbor, but if you're from a small town, you know everybody and you know the history of everybody, and so th this story is just so real. Yeah, it, uh, and, it, and it's true. It's, um, I, I did want to talk a bit about where they came from because they came from Tipperary. And Tipperary in the uh, early to mid-1800s was the most violent county in uh, Ireland. And uh, there had been terrible violence and all kinds of uh, fights and um, killings and so on. And so they were refugees from that system. And it was... It, it, uh, of course, there was terrible uh, animosity between the Protestants and the Catholics, but there was also animosity between the Catholics themselves, because some would be, some would do business with Protestants and some would not. And so the fighting, well, it, it was all brought to, 
Lucan. And Lucan, um, the Irish contingent that settled in Lucan were very prominently from Tipperary because they were leaving that violence, but they were taking the violence with them. And the one aspect that people don't know about the Donnelly story is that they, the Donnellys were Roman Catholics and they were killed on the 4th of, uh, of February, 1880, by another group of uh, Catholic, Catholic farmers from the area. And these were the ones that did the killing were not bandits or, you know, rebels or um, uh, any, they, they were not criminals, they were heads of households. They were family members. They all had their own farms and their own families. And it, this group of 40 that got together with a certain amount of blessing by the church. Uh, they, they moved on the Donnellys, uh, they say as many as 40 of these men, and uh, they, they you know, burned down and killed at these two farmsteads. They, they killed you know, a good majority of the Donnellys. There were some that got away, some Donnellys that escaped the massacre, of course, as is indicated in the book. And that's, that's all accurate. But, um, but it's a big family, right? It's a big, this Donnelly clan. It, there's, uh, there, there's what, like six, five or six sons? Seven sons and one daughter, Jenny. Uh, poor right. Jenny was the last one born. And uh, so she had a big problem uh, finding boyfriends because they were all so intimidated by the seven older brothers that she was rather lovelorn. And she finally found, uh, found a man that would stand up to the brothers and married him. And uh, they went to live in Godridge. But yeah, she, so she's an interesting character. But there were seven boys. They were all, um, you know, big, strong, most of them good-looking guys. And they could read and write. They, they dressed well. They were a relatively, relatively affluent family for the time. So uh, the Donnelly boys would come into town in Lucan with um, uh, vests and uh, high, they loved high leather boots and watch uh, chains and uh, they, um, you know, they, they loved horses. They, were, they had the finest horses in the area. So there was an element of jealousy, but this is what I wanted to mention that people don't know much about, and that is that they, they did business with Protestants and that's why they were prosperous. And many of the local Catholic farmers hated that, hated that A, they did business, they would even speak to a Protestant, and B, that they were made uh, prosperous by their business dealings with, with Protestant uh, customers. Yeah, it's funny because like Jim Donnelly, well, the whole Donnelly family, for the time, they're pretty progressive and open-minded people. I mean, like you said, yeah. they, ha they openly have friends who are Protestant, which is a huge no in the yeah, Catholic community. Yeah, huge no. <laughs> yeah, and then Jim and Johanna, they, how much of that is true that, that they they married out of love instead of, because that wasn't really a common thing at the time, right? No, they, um, they didn't actually marry until they got to Canada and they had a child. So that was a little sticky in terms of the church. They never had a very good relationship with the priests. Um, Joanna was outspoken, which was another no. She was fairly formidable and, uh, the, uh, so they, there was Father Connolly that they had a long relationship with and very interesting letters going back and forth. Connolly, at one point, at the podium in the midst of a, 
uh, homily said they re he referred to this family in this community and if they don't if they don't behave themselves god will send balls of fire on their heads and i think that was a quote and he spoke about the donnellys quite often from the from the podium and he stirred up an animosity toward the donnellys the donnellys would still come to mass they were still religious and that they they were catholics but they had a very rough relationship with the priest as as is portrayed in the book in my opinion of things from what I'm taking from the story, it's very much, it's a Canadian story, but it's also just as much an Irish story too. And- Well, there were refugees from Ireland, from, uh, you know, troubles, from violence and xenophobia. And uh, they, they really um, had to get out of Tipperary as people were doing. And, and then the irony is they all settle in Lucan and the troubles continue there. Yeah. I, I want to get to the, uh, the night of the massacre, but just before we get there, I love what you did in the book with playing around with this theme of this Donnelly family curse that starts in Ireland and the curse doesn't leave the Donnelly family when they leave Ireland. It follows them to this new world. I, I really found that really interesting. It, it was sort of, uh, it, it's reminiscent to, for me of uh, Neil Gaiman's book, American Gods, where, you know, these guys from all over the, around the world have come to the new world. I don't know if you've read the book, but it's, it's very similar. I just love the idea of, of these curses that just follow these families around across the ocean even. Do you think that, do you think Jim Donnelly really did believe he was cursed? Um, well, you tell me, I mean, uh, the idea of uh, a, a curse or a portent or witchcraft or, you know, the supernatural is very Irish uh, in its origins. And I, I believe people thought that Joanna Donnelly was a witch and that she, uh, performed rituals and that sort of thing. And that's how she maintained her power. And it's an interesting question, just in terms of the curse. It's funny you should say about the curse because I've, I've been working on scripts for the series. Uh, we have a series going with uh, CTV, Bell Media. Nice. And, uh, yeah, it's very exciting to review, to, to go back to the material and uh, enhance it, if you will. Like I've, I've been dealing with the Donnellys for a long time writing the book. And now as a screenplay, I can go into things like the supernatural, but the, the concept of a curse uh, is really interesting. And so you, just when they, consistently in the story of the Donnellys, they, they get to a certain point where they're doing quite well and then something happens. Yeah, it's almost like the curse is always just sort of lingering in the shadows because they are successful in many ways. And I mean, you can look at, uh, you know, even just getting awarded. So when they come to Lucan, they squat illegally on this property. Yeah, and, yeah a very fatal uh, uh, decision on their part that they would do this. And, and then, you know, the land then becomes, uh, you know, contentious. And then it leads to the, the murder uh, of the former owner and yeah so it's it's one thing after another I, I i've enjoyed playing with that concept of that they are cursed that they're they're trying their best and they're working really hard and they're but but something always grabs them and you know i think that um what what we're exposing in the series which began in the book was the idea that jim donnelly the concept of violence he can control himself to a point but it's the curse of 
this, uh, his uh, heritage in Ireland, the idea that, you know, he has been wronged. His people were wronged 300 years ago by Cromwell's invasion, where um, Jim Donnelly was actually the great, great, great grandson of Peter Donnelly, who was a great warrior and chieftain and a very fair administrator of, well, it was feudal law in Ireland, but he was well-known and, and powerful, and he had 200 horses, and he had thousands of acres of land, and the British took all of that away. So uh, that's the roots that they came from. And that bitterness, the British invasion, created a bitterness in the Irish that lasts to this day. And, uh, and that, that continues through, that, that, that desire for vengeance, that, that uh, uh, just uh, uh, impulsive violence that Jim Donnelly uh, at certain points in his life could not control. And that, right. that is part of the curse. Yeah, and he's trying to contain the the violence, but he's got this chip on his shoulder. Like I, I think that in the book, like you try to give Jim Donnelly a pretty sympathetic ear, but there, there's just some points where like you can't help but I'm going to give you an example that I really like. He he gets he squats on the land, and uh, there's a big fight with his this guy named Farrell, who's the, the rightful legal owner of the land, and the judge he actually, he sides with like a pretty fair statement. He says, okay, Jim Donnelly, you can keep half the land, which you didn't even pay for. And Jim Donnelly is like, no, it's my land. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to let it go. Yes, it was. That's the thing. And Joanna recognized that, that, okay, they, they lose half their acreage. They have this hundred acre parcel and uh, they want to split it down the middle. They've been there for seven years. And that's a pretty good deal. So they totally. actually get the, they get the deed for 50 acres. They get to keep most of the cleared land and their house and buildings. It's a great deal. And Joanna recognizes that. But Jim just goes, no, 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 I want, a, I want it all. Yeah. And again, it's the, his fatal flaw, his curse, if you will. The, and, and eventually leading to the violence and Pat Farrell's murder. Yeah, Pat Farrell's murder where he clubs him over the head with a, a stick or a branch and kills the man. To me, the curse of Jim gets even worse when he's in jail. You have a great line in the book where Jim's been in jail for years. And like the Kingston pen at this time is, I would imagine it would be a lot like a medieval dungeon chamber. Yeah. But he, he finally gets out of jail and he's, he's, he's a broken man in many ways. And he's got this great line where he says, the, the, you're either a friend or an enemy and there's no in between. I just, I, well, I think that just highlights so well the mindset that he has and, and how, you know, it, the curse has gotten worse over time, especially being in jail. Right. And, and he passes that off to his sons or most of his sons, the, the idea that you're either a friend or an enemy. And there was an old saying with the Donnellys that, that either you're, you know, they they are the best friends. They were, you know, these handsome guys with great horses and they would, they would party and they would drink and they would dance and they would play music. Will played a great fiddle and they would womanize and they, they were just so vibrant in terms of what they did. And they were, they were, they did criminal acts. They, uh, there's no question, but they were very attractive, interesting characters that, that embraced life. They're, they're balling. You would say these days, like they're, they're flashing their, their money around and uh, having a good time and horse racing. Can you, can you take us to, I really want to get to the night of the murder. Like, can you take us to 
some of the, the immediate events leading up to the massacre of the Donnelly family and, and the people who were involved in that? Right. Well, there was the group of vigilantes. They were called the Peace Society, and they were organized through the Catholic Church. And uh, Father O'Connell, uh, uh, Father Connolly, rather, Father Connolly was uh, really disliked the Donnellys for a number of reasons. And he uh, said to the Peace Society that he had organized, and they had signed a book, and that, that still exists. There are 45 members of the Peace Society in that the year before the massacre. Um, so he was giving his blessing to the vigilantes, not, not to necessarily kill the Donnellys, but to intimidate them enough that their criminal acts would stop. And by this time, people that were, were not friends of the Donnellys blamed everything that happened on the Donnellys. And there was, before the Donnellys arrived in Lucan, there were a lot, a lot of barn burnings and uh, people being beaten up and, you know, drunken parties and brawls and that sort of thing before they arrived in 1848. 40, 40, and after the massacre, even when Will Donnelly fin finally moved away, there was still violence in the town. We were still, there was arson and, and uh, a couple of brawls. It was a little quieter, but not much. Eventually, like the this peace society, uh, the men involved in the pe the peace society, they they ride out to the Donnelly farmstead at night. Do you think they went there with the intent to kill? And how did they actually like go about this business? Well, it's a it's a good question. Did they intend to kill? They they had they had weapons with them. They were in the book somewhere in costumes or masks, some in makeup. Uh, it was. Uh, not uncommon in Tipperary in the 1840s and 50s for men to dress in women's costumes, women's clothing, uh, just <laughs> which is kind of a bizarre twist. But whether they intended to kill as many as they did, I don't know that. They, I, I mean, I still don't. I, I think things got out of hand. I think they had had a few drinks and they were talking about how much they hated the Donnellys and they got into it. And the clubs came out and they just started to kill people. Yeah, so, it, it, it could have been like maybe they, who knows, eh? like maybe they killed one guy and then it's like, well, we, we killed one person unless the bloodlust is up and just keep going. Yeah, but you know, it was, if you think about it, they went on to uh, Will Donnelly's homestead and I've, I've been up, I've spent some time now between those two, it's a long way. It's like three miles away and they, they would have time to cool down. And they went further north to Wills and they went there with the intent of killing them as well. Yeah. Um, and they, 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 they killed the brother. But, um, you know, the, you would think that if it was done in the, you know, the heat of uh, an, an argument or anger, it would have been quelled by that, you know, the traveling to to the next farm, but, but it was not, they, uh, they killed more. So it was, there's, you know, in cold blood, there was, there was an element of cold blood. It was not, it was premeditated. It was uh, arguably the confrontation was blessed by the church, by Father O'Connell, and, uh, and off they went to do this job. And they almost went to a third, uh, uh, a third farm. Were, that were sympathizers with the Donnellys, but they decided it was a very cold night. 
freezing cold and they decided it was three o'clock in the morning, let's go home. And <laughs> there was some truth to that. They were going, well, we've got to feed the pigs and we got to, yeah. you know, my wife will wonder what's going on. So they all decided to, I guess we'll go back to town um, or to our homes. Was justice done in this case? Well, it's a really interesting point, and I, I hope this comes out in this came out in the book because certainly it will come out in the series, and that is the idea that when the Dalis were massacred, it was a huge event. It was comparable. People have said um, it was comparable to the assassination of Lincoln in terms of how many. Uh, newspaper journalists came into town. They flooded into town. There were scores and scores from the States and from other provinces, from Montreal and Toronto. There were, people were asking everybody, uh, like for three months, they stayed in the town of Lucan and asked questions. And they eventually, some of the journalists, there were incidents about them being beaten up because the townspeople were just so sick of them asking questions. And they wanted this, this whole thing to end. But at the beginning, after the massacre, there was a huge outpouring of public support of the Donleys and empathy for the Donleys. And this is the most horrible thing. All of these people have been killed uh, in this homestead. And, and it was big news all over North America. But as the trial went on, the, the Donleys, you know, those that had been killed were, were dead and you can't bring them back. But there were... Um, six men that were charged with the, with the killing of the Donleys. And the evidence was overwhelming. There's, there's no question. These six men were involved in going to the farm and, and bludgeoning. And there were eyewitnesses, Johnny O'Connor, the, the kid that was under the bed, very clear testimony that he knew them all because he was from the town and his father was involved in the church and the politics. He knew them all and he could name them. But, um, what happened was the, the press started to do profiles of the individual defendants, the murders. And, and actually the courts were going to say, okay, these are the first six guys. We're going we're gonna to prosecute these six guys. They had plans to do, you know, another 15 or 20 uh, if, if the charges against these six had been successful. And people began to realize that. So as the trial progressed, there was an empathy for the defendants because they, were, they weren't bandits or ne'er-do-wells, they were the heads of households. And so people became sympathetic to them and the support turned from the Donnellys to these people because how was the town gonna survive? If, if the charges had, had worked out and they'd been convicted, six men would have hanged uh, and they were prominent townspeople and it would have destroyed the community. So I believe- In a way, it- the, the choice was almost like if, if you convict these men of the crime, then you're essentially convicting the entire town, right? Yeah, that was it. And they were trying to save the reputation of the town. Uh, so what they had to do was shift the whole idea that the Donnellys were the instigators. The Donnellys deserved what they got. And I think that that shift has been portrayed in the, in the literature and the plays and the musicals and the songs uh, that the Donnellys were really nasty characters. And they, there's no question they were, they were badasses. But uh, I think the town to, to, to carry on, to go forward, had to portray the Donnellys as people that deserve to die. And yeah. 
So that it's a really interesting switch for me. And I, you know, it's a complex story and it's, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed working on it. Yeah. Well, Hey, you know what? I think that's a pretty good place to, to end off. So the book, it's called Cursed Blood of the Donnellys. You talking about the series coming out. I'm, I'm really excited to, to see where that goes. I'm going to wish you a lot of uh, commercial and literary success with that one. Cause I think it's going to be fantastic. Well, thank you. It's, the script's going really well. Thanks a lot for coming on today. And uh, yeah, we'll, hopefully we'll talk again sometime. Okay, Russell. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your questions and your interest. And that concludes my interview with Keith Leckie, author of Cursed, Blood of the Donnellys. It was an honor to speak to Keith about the book and the Black Donnelly family. And if you want to learn more about this infamous story, Well, you can, of course, buy your own copy of the book, which I'm going to post onto the website. After talking to Keith about this tragic event, this infamous event, the big takeaway for me is the question of, what is justice? What is the law? Is it all the words in the legal jargon found in the criminal code? Is it the biases of a particular judge on a particular day? Or is the law merely the will of whoever's holding that gun or that baton? There were witnesses to the Donnelly murders, yet not a single man was convicted of killing the family. So I ask again, what is justice? Alright, on a different note, I just want to say that in the last couple months this podcast has really taken off, so... If you've been listening, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. You can write to me and tell me what you would like to hear next on the show. That's actually how this episode got started. And if you like what I'm doing here, then please do me a favor and leave a review and follow the One Soldier podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. You can, of course, also support the podcast by reading one of my two books or both of them, One Soldier, A Canadian Soldier's Fight Against the Islamic State, and the Ponds of War. And finally, I'm going to dedicate this episode to the members of the Donnelly family massacred on the night of February 3rd, 1880, and to everyone else who is fighting their own curses. Out. <laughs>